I'm Mark Peterson, and this is Before, During, and After, a podcast from FEMA. In any emergency, a successful response depends on the partnership of the whole community. Certainly, the response of first responders and emergency management is critical, but also the tremendous support of voluntary organizations, including the faith community, are key to providing the much-needed and multifaceted support that disaster survivors need when they need it most. On today's episode, we talk to two leaders of that collaborative support and explore how leveraging the many strengths of neighborhood partners can further ensure success before, during, and after disasters. All right, so I'm so excited to have a few minutes to talk to one of my good friends, Marcus Coleman, the director of the DHS Center for Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. Marcus, I'm thrilled to hear from you and talk to you today. Mark, grateful to be here, man. Good to see you again and looking forward to our conversation. And also, uh, somebody I'm, I'm just so thrilled to meet and, and hear from, April Wood from the National Voluntary Organizations Active in Disasters. Uh, April, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks, Mark. I'm looking forward to the conversation and excited to be here with one of my colleagues and longtime partners, Marcus Coleman. Marcus, for some of the emergency managers out there who maybe aren't uh, very familiar with the organization of the Department of Homeland Security and FEMA, um, and some of the unique uh, organizations, offices, centers within the Department of Homeland Security, yours is pretty unique. And so tell us a little bit about the Center for Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. Sure. Um, it is very much a unique office. I serve as the director for the Center for Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships at the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, we're actually one of 11 centers of the White House Office of Faith-Based Neighborhood Partnerships. And what our, our fundamental function is, or what we're focused on, is helping to connect faith-based and community-based organizations to government uh, to help solve problems at the community level. And so uh, we have centers at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Health and Human Services, Veterans Affairs. Uh, my office, the center at the Department of Homeland Security, is actually physically located in FEMA. Uh, the impetus and creation for our office was in 2006. Uh, this came on the heels of Hurricane Katrina. And one of the, the big lessons at the time is that there needed to be more connectivity between all of the great resources and coordination uh, for faith-based and community-based organizations and federal government. Uh, excited to be on the line with one of our close partners and colleagues, the National Voluntary Organizations Active in Disasters, and specifically April Wood, uh, who has been bringing her leadership to public service in a few different roles, uh, but most recently has been selected as the president and CEO of National VOAD. And so, yeah, our center comes alongside people like April, in addition to faith and community leaders from across the country, uh, to help make sure nationally we're coordinating together and we're collaborating um, as, as appropriate. And then when disasters strike, uh, that we help to support disaster survivors uh, for a number of hazards, right? Not just natural, but man-made as well. Marcus, one of the things we really want to talk about um, is the larger connection between both of your organizations and the FEMA strategic plan. We're going to get to that later in the discussion, but um, your center has some really significant areas of focus uh, that you're looking to through 2025. So can you talk a little bit about those? Sure. I, I'll touch on them briefly and then I'll focus on two kind of specifically. So uh, all of our areas of focus are focused on the power of relationship 
building uh, pre-incident because we know when things happen, uh, it's always going to be that social capital and that social connectedness that helps people uh, navigate uh, the steps after uh, when we start talking about recovery and long-term. So focus number one is really focusing on partnerships that advance equity. So that's in direct connection uh, to FEMA strategic plan, uh, goal number one, and strengthening climate resilience. Uh, area focus two, Amplifying delivery of FEMA programs post-disaster in historically underserved populations. This picks up on the administrator's focus on equity, uh, specifically looking at programs like individual assistance and making sure uh, that we can help bolster the awareness of some of the program changes we're making uh, pre-disaster. Uh, improving safety and security for places of worship and community spaces. I know we'll talk a little bit about that more, uh, but really focused on this idea of looking at the places that people worship, fellowship, and serve, and being mindful to come alongside organizations um, that are seeking to create those spaces and make them safer. And then providing technical assistance to emergency managers. I think in our title, uh, th this may not be inherent, but a lot of our focus day to day is coming alongside state and local emergency managers because uh, they are often are the ones leading on safety and security, disaster preparedness, community preparedness, and helping to provide them the tools and resources they need as they conduct their outreach to the community. And then advising on the development of outreach and engagement uh, across the department. There are a number of challenges that we face uh, as a department and as a country. And what we know to be true is we have some great partners internally, including the FEMA Voluntary Agency Liaisons. Uh, they do really good work, and we want to make sure that we are working across the department for other agents of change, like our FEMA Voluntary Agency Liaisons, to help support, again, faith-based and community-based organizations that are seeking to help people before, during, and after a disaster. So before we kind of transition into talking a little bit about those areas of focus, you know, I, I wanted to spend a little time uh, learning about the NVOAD. Um, April, the NVOAD was founded uh, in 1970, and for emergency managers who maybe haven't had the experience of working with the NVOAD, um, can you give a little background on the organization and how you bring uh, entities together? Absolutely. Thanks, Mark. Uh, so the National Volunteer Organizations Active in Disaster, or National VOAD, uh, was formed by seven founding organizations, really following the devastating impacts of Hurricane Camille in 1969. So these organizations um, at that time really recognized the value of what we now call our four C's, which is cooperation, communication, coordination, and collaboration across agencies and programs as a whole. The National Board membership for us is really comprised of about 130 organizations, which also include the 56 state and territory VOADs across the country. It's these organizations that have led a growing VOAD movement, if you will, across the country that's really comprised of thousands of local volunteers and community-based organizations um, around the, the U.S. In 2019 alone, just to share um, a pretty powerful statistic that I uh, we learned from our recent review of our membership, we had nearly 10 million volunteers contributing more than 48 million volunteer hours just in 2019 alone. And that is truly a powerful and inspirational force of good helping disaster survivors across the country. Um, I really would encourage every emergency manager listening and community leader to get to know your VOAD leadership and identify ways to work together to be able to help communities before they're affected by a disaster. Because understanding one's capacities and capabilities um, is truly the key to a well-executed response and recovery effort. So April, uh, you know, like Marcus just described, uh, you know, the focus areas for, for the center, 
what are some of the focus areas for the NVOAD over the next couple of years? We're definitely looking at uh, you know four areas as we continue to implement our strategic plan. We're on year four of that five-year plan. I um, mean, over the next year or two, we're really focused in the areas of mobilizing volunteers and particularly diverse volunteers, being able to recruit and mobilize diverse volunteers from a variety of communities and organizations to get them involved and help support some of these longer, more concurrent recovery events um, that we're seeing post-disaster response um, events. We're looking at leveraging tech, leveraging tech in new ways that we never have before, using geographic information systems, GIS, um, being able to look at our DART platform where we have a number of modules to support client intake, volunteer intake, case management, um, looking at other opportunities to utilize tech around blockchain, building digital wallets for clients or disaster survivors, being able to build volunteer service wallets to provide a way for our volunteers to easily access digital um, you know, service hours and be able to track all of that. The third area we're focused on is looking at engaging the private sector in, in a couple of different ways. One is really aligning programmatic areas within the, the private sector where there are existing disaster programs. Um, maybe they are additional food trucks, maybe they're equipment around communication and technology that they deploy to disasters on a routine basis. And being able to align the capabilities of our membership within National VOAD with many of our partners and additional private sector organizations that just haven't had the opportunity to get to know us yet um, at National VOAD. And then lastly, we're looking to expand our support of long-term recovery programs, leveraging that expertise um, that exists within the VOAD movement around long-term recovery, looking at expanding our grant programs to support our membership with their efforts in long-term recovery, and just overall being able to support long-term recovery in a more robust way um, with tools and training, um, hopefully using our learning management system in the future to be able to provide increased accessibility to some of the greatest curriculum that has been developed in this sector um, from some of the most brilliant minds across long-term recovery efforts. April, um, I know that one of the ways that you bring um, uh, the variety of organizations together is through your national conference. And so uh, maybe tell us a little bit about what is unique about the conference and uh, some of the focus areas that you had recently this uh, May, I believe, right? The last time you held your, your conference. Yeah, we just recently gathered in Baltimore for our first in-person conference in about three years due to the pandemic, of course, and what a powerful week it was. Um, you know, we had a near record turnout um, and we really had the opportunity to focus our efforts on empowering resiliency and fostering diversity, equity and inclusion. Um, you know, some of the highlights included welcoming our first time attendees, more than 350, by the way, um, from organizations across the country, um, some of which represented tribal leaders and communities of color, and hearing from more than 125 disaster experts throughout the week on uh, various topics, ranging from long-term recovery to pet care during a disaster, um, just to name a few. Uh, really one of my favorite stories from the week, we had, um, you know, we had a number of plenary speakers. We were joined by Marcus Coleman, um, who's with us here today, Chairman John Hope Bryant um, from Operation Hope, as well as uh, Professor Monica Sanders, who was a senior fellow at Tulane's Disaster Resiliency Leadership Academy, um, also known as DERLA, for those of you familiar with that program. Um, but Professor Sanders was sharing with us um, some of her efforts to engage at-risk youth, um, including those with a criminal history and background, um, in a community Wi-Fi collaborative um, to describe a, a program that was focused on increasing digital access 
in underserved communities. And it turns out one of her former students was actually present in the room working for one of the conference vendors. And it truly validated all of the resiliency work. Um, you know, when he showed up at the stage and said, look at me, your program worked, keep doing what you're doing. I'm here with a career path um, because of the efforts that you put in in this voluntary resiliency program. So it was kind of a goosebump moment, if you will, um, for all of the attendees, but exciting to see the validation take place. You know, a lot of times this work can be very taxing. Um, we also, you know, I think the greatest value of our annual conference is bringing so many people together from diverse backgrounds and organizations and understanding how we all work together across government, the private sector, and voluntary agencies as a whole, really with a unity of mission and purpose to help communities impacted by disasters. Since you were both at that conference, um, and obviously I can only assume you, you must have um, spoken with just countless organizations uh, that we're likely to work with in emergencies and disasters. Um, you, you know, thinking about the last two years, it's been a shift for um, really everybody in America. And um, and I'm sure there's been challenges for voluntary organizations as they try to uh, work to support disasters. So I wonder if you could share a little bit about, um, you know, some of the maybe the challenges that those organizations have uh, been feeling and whether or not we are starting to return to a new normal. Just looking at um, the concurrence of so many different disasters, if you will, across the board. So looking at, um, you know, multiple natural cause disasters occurring, uh, the pandemic ongoing throughout all of that, the social justice issues that we're seeing, all compounded by the economic impacts from all of those across the board. I think the voluntary agencies in the sector as a whole has been incre incredibly dynamic um, and flexible in their efforts to scale their programs and adjudicate their resources in a way that they're really focused on those disaster survivors or that um, community individual that needs some extra support through this difficult economic time. Uh, you know, utilizing resources in different ways has been one of the themes throughout um, the last couple of years of being able to leverage technology, utilize that virtual environment in a way that we just have not previously in the disaster sector and reaching even more people um, by leveraging those resources. I say to add to that, um, I think one of the things that, that is true uh, for everybody that's active in emergency management across the discipline is we're busy. Uh, I think it's, I think more than, than 300 or so uh, presidentially declared disasters that are currently open. And what we know for many of our faith-based and community-based groups, right, they're not just involved for those things that reach the threshold of presidential disaster declarations. They're working on everyday emergencies. They're working on apartment fires. And what's true for all of the members at that conference and for faith-based and community-based organizations across the board, right, since COVID, there's been a number of incidents at the community level, at the neighborhood level, at the city level uh, that, that has really uh, stretched, uh, not just, of course, our government resources, uh, but many of the resources of our faith-based NGO partners as well. And the thing that I was struck most by at the conference and continue to be inspired by is every organization that I've been able to speak with, be it at National VOAD or in other places and spaces that focus on environmental and environmental justice or climate justice, they're clear on what their assignment is, engaging with members of the community to help build out a whole community response to address many of the issues we face. 
but my heart uh, really speaks, uh, goes out to those folks uh, that are tired, right? I, I think we, we can't get away from the mental and emotional toll uh, that all of this has done for us, particularly in this emergency management and crisis leadership space. And so I know many of the conversations as people were meeting each other for the first time in two to three years in person and connecting, it, it provided some uplifting spirits as well. And just, I think it was a moment to give us a little bit more energy, but I'm very mindful uh, from a government perspective that many of our faith-based and community-based organizations often are getting multiple calls uh, to work on many assignments. And, and while I'm grateful uh, for all of the work that they continue to do as they say yes to support communities, uh, I'm also mindful, uh, and I know April is equally committed as well, is that we need to continue to be as inclusive as possible and expand the table uh, for folks that want to get into the emergency management space. And the conference was a great place to do that. I'm sure that the FEMA strategic plan, you know, really, truly plays a very large role in uh, in the planning for both of the organizations uh, that you represent. But specifically, you know, the focus on instilling equity, I think, is common amongst both of um, of what we're both of your organizations and what we're talking about here. But also, you know, the focus on climate resilience and, and readiness. So knowing that the plan is, you know, relatively new, um, how do you see you know, each of your organizations playing a part in in really advancing those uh, those goals. And maybe I'll start with April. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Um, so, you know, National Boat is committed to working alongside our board of directors and our member organizations to really assess, identify actions that we can take to promote and support equity and disaster programming. Uh, there's so much more to be done, and we recognize that. Um, but really, the first step for us is identifying the issues and then working alongside our partners, such as FEMA and our state emergency management partners and our academic partners um, across the board, our private sector partners, really as a team to address um, those issues around equity. And Mark, for, for my part, yes, during my plenary speech, a lot of it was very much focused on uh, the role that the strategic plan plays across all three goal areas and really the opportunities where we're already working together uh, with our faith-based and neighborhood partners. When we talk about instilling equity and emergency management, a uh, part of what it looks like is to see the work of you know, Presbyterian disaster assistance, Buddha Suchi, uh, organizations like the United Sikhs and others coming alongside members of uh, that were impacted by the severe uh, weather tornadoes in Kentucky um, and making sure that, right, we're amplifying outreach and engagement to all of the community, right? And so specifically looking at some of the work that's happened in support of our Hispanic and Latino churches in the area uh, that were equally impacted, right, from, from those severe storms. On the leading climate resilience piece, I'm super excited uh, for the leadership and work of members of the National Voluntary Organizations of, of Disasters. I mentioned Buddha Suchi as one example, Team Ruby Khan, uh, Lutheran Disaster Services, uh, Adventist Community Services. There are a number of organizations in their own way uh, that have been focused on climate resilience, climate adaptation, and we're continuing to expand those partnerships, right? So I think one of the things that continues to, to kind of encourage and inspire me is that many of these national organizations are there aren't just there to lead from where they are, but they're also about co-creating a table. And I think uh, part to part of your question, I think where, where we go from here now that the plan is new uh, from FEMA's perspective, and I'd say from the government perspective to the community, 
is not forcing people to come to the tables that we've created as government, but making sure that we're intentional about being at tables that are developed by our faith-based and community-based partners. And so I know a lot of what the voluntary organization or active and disaster model is about is about co-creating those tables, right, between sectors. And so that's something that we continue to be committed to do, um, including, right, I'm actually spending time uh, with the national denomination that's not a member of the national VOAD currently, uh, but that is equally focused on disaster preparedness, uh, including uh, right safety and security for places of worship and community spaces. And so uh, that's where I'm at currently, and I will be leaving here and then continue to do some of that engagement with some other groups. And I'm just grateful, again, that we have a partner in the National VOAD that is coming alongside some of those same partners. Maybe they don't even know what the word VOAD is, right? Uh, but they very much are aware of Salvation Army, the Red Cross, and they want to get connected uh, to help people before, during, and after disasters. It's a lot of what our focus was during the conference and uh, hence for. Okay, so Marcus, going back to uh, one of the areas of focus that you mentioned, um, technical assistance, and and maybe what that looks like for emergency managers and first responders that are um, facing perhaps their first uh, major event that really engages the faith community and uh, community organizations to really respond to the needs of disaster survivors. So can you talk about, you know, really what does technical assistance from your center look like for those emergency managers? So Kentucky is a unique example of, of a state that has made the decision uh, quite some time ago to establish a state voluntary agency liaison. So I know I talked a little bit about that role earlier. This is essentially a government entity or a government partner uh, that works with faith-based and community-based organizations before disasters happen, right? So they're doing things in the emergency management context, right? They're planning, they're organizing, they're equipping, they're training, they're exercising and evaluating um, in that direction towards when things happen, how are we working together? And having that state voluntary agency liaison is critical because it actually helps to expedite a lot of what we know is important during response and recovery with faith-based and community groups. Our center, a few years back, actually under my predecessor, Reverend David Myers, went across the country and worked with state emergency management agencies, including Kentucky, to help think through what does the proper composition for this role look like, right? We know that states have very limited resources and often are trying to leverage all of the funds that are provided from the department and specifically FEMA uh, to get personnel built up. And so I think that that's a good example of where through our work with them and thinking about what a role would look like, taking lessons learned from other states that also have state voluntary agency liaisons. Um, I know, for example, in Missouri, uh, that there was there, there was a, a state vow, um, as well as Georgia, uh, some in Texas. Uh, so really trying to kind of build that national network that in addition to the federal uh, voluntary agency liaisons, that we really come alongside and support some of our state partners uh, that, again, are looking to build positions. When we think about programs, I'd say the program that probably is getting the most attention that we're currently focused on for technical assistance is the public assistance program. It's a very critical part of the recovery process. Of course, we know for SLTT partners, state, local, tribal, territorial partners, uh, but also many NGOs are very interested and use, right? I think we've seen this during COVID, category B and a lot of the permanent work function. There was that policy change uh, for public assistance in 2018 that affords faith-based and community partners to apply as sub-applicants uh, to do permanent work. 
And one of the areas of focus for my office is making sure that we support not just our faith-based partners uh, with navigating our process, but listening and learning uh, from our state partners, right? So from the state of Kentucky to the state of North Carolina to the state of Florida, uh, we've been able to connect with some of our state partners on the public assistance side um, and learning from them how they've been talking about communicating with public assistance or about the public assistance program and really trying to create more improved mechanisms, right, from, from, from the FEMA space. So we talk about the federal support that we provide to states uh, to make sure that, you know, they're able to best manage all of the uh, interest uh, and desire to apply for that particular grant program. Uh, the last thing I, I'd, I'd kind of say in terms of what technical assistance looks like, Again, it's coming alongside some of our state partners and state emergency managers and creating opportunities, not just for that near-term response like we've seen in Kentucky, but also keeping in mind some of the longer-term recovery efforts. I am super proud of the work that's happened in West Virginia uh, between the West Virginia Emergency Management and the West Virginia Voluntary Organizations and Disasters uh, to execute a very unique project, the Bridge Project. I know they just recently uh, completed what's called Big Blue, uh, a massive bridge there. And so so uh, I, those are some examples. I know April may have some others in terms of just the role that state BOADs play in helping some of their state government partners uh, get more technical assistance around engaging faith-based and community groups. Thanks, Marcus. Um, you know, I, I mentioned that I think it's really important to understand the capabilities and capacities of the voluntary agencies and the broader community as a whole, um, as well as your community influencers and mobilizers. Um, anybody that has that technical assistance that can really contribute to that whole community approach. You know, at a National VOAD, we operate using a committee approach. We have about a dozen committees and each plays a critical role in being able to provide subject matter experts and technical assistance um, to the cycle of disasters um, occurring. And so some examples of that might be our mass care committee, um, where we have experts around sheltering and feeding. We have an emotional and spiritual care committee. And with many of our faith-based partners, more than 50% of our membership is comprised of diverse um, faith-based partners and backgrounds. Um, to be able to contribute. You know, we have experts in disaster case management. Um, some of those organizations came together after Hurricane Harvey um, to support the Project Comeback Disaster Case Management Program down in Texas. And really looking once again at long-term recovery and just the amount of expertise needed to address some of those complex situations um, in long-term recovery that we're continuing to see. Our experts um, are, you know, once again, they represent so many different organizations and fabrics of communities across the country, those diverse perspectives um, and truly seasoned disaster experts um, make up the VOAD community across the board as a whole. Marcus, can I go back to one of the things that you mentioned about the public assistance program? Of course, you know, it is new that um, faith-based organizations in, in certain situations are uh, be have now become eligible applicants, but maybe put a finer point on it. What, what does... Um, are we seeing faith-based organizations taking advantage of that grant program? And, and what are the ways that they're doing it? Yes, we are seeing it. And, and, uh, and I'll admit, man, it is a painful process if you're going through it for the first time. Um, I know as many of our listeners know, uh, the public assistance program is a very complex uh, reimbursable project, project-based grant, right, basically. So um, we have seen a number of faith-based and community-based organizations uh, very involved from Louisiana to Puerto Rico, uh, as I mentioned, in Kentucky, in Tennessee, um, absolutely taking up the program. And I think one of the areas of focus for us is just navigating what it means to right sit in the seat 
of, of a faith or community-based organization. Uh, I, I, I'll just humbly say, I think a question that I ask, ask myself is if I'm a, a pastor, a rabbi, or an imam, and my place of worship is destroyed, and my home is destroyed, I'm not only a disaster survivor, but now I got to be a project manager for a construction project and all the things that come with that, right? And my team does as well. And so making sure that we bring together the right composition of partners uh, within my own organization. So we have, right, that thankfully we, we actually just released a video uh, that we're happy to provide in the show notes or share with you to put, include in the show notes that talks through from faith leaders, uh, one in Tennessee and a few in a church in Puerto Rico, how they navigated the process and the steps that they've taken. Uh, that's one step in, in a larger effort that we want to come alongside our national VOAD partners and others with. I was actually able to spend some time with Presbyterian, the Presbyterian Disaster Assistance and many of the Presbyterian groups in, in Kansas City earlier this year. And they had talked to me about some of the unique intricacies uh, for their organization, just because of simply how they're structured, right? Not every place of worship is an independent 501c3. There's different legal authorities we have to consider. So uh, there's a lot of nuances and intricacies there, but I will say uh, we have a lot of very determined faith-based NGO partners uh, that, that are actively involved. And thankfully, uh, we continue to have states that have been leaning forward on how to making sure, you know, from the state perspective, uh, they can make the program as accessible um, and as, as supportive and engaging for faith-based community-based organizations that need it as possible. April, I think that Marcus is is providing a great example of how the federal government um, can really, um, really support financially some of these organizations that are um, out there trying to respond and, and recover from these disasters. Um, but I wonder if, if you have any other examples of how um, the federal government, or just governments, it doesn't have to be the federal government, but be, between, you know, community governments, state governments, federal government, how we're working together better to make responses more efficient and, and recovery um, maybe more successful for communities. Yeah, so I always love the multi-agency approach, Mark, right, of, of bringing together different agencies across the sector. You know, I mentioned government, private sector partners alongside our voluntary agencies to be able to plan together, to be able to respond together, and then be able to recover together across the board. Um, some great examples of that are things like the multi-agency feeding template, where we see these multi-agency feeding task forces um, that develop during larger scale complex events, where we're really tackling the problem of feeding a community together. Um, ensuring that we're eliminating those food deserts um, that open up and that we're all coordinating and understanding um, what each other is doing so that we're avoiding a duplication of resources and that we're able to maximize what resources have been brought to the table. Uh, you know, another example I always love to use around multi-agency coordination are the multi-agency resource centers, MARCs, if you will. They're great examples of many, many different organizations coming together with that disaster survivor in mind. The focus being making that journey for that disaster survivor's recovery as simple and easy as possible um, to be able to support them properly along the way. As we are in the midst of hurricane season here, um, you know, what, what advice do you have for faith-based and community organizations and some of the voluntary organizations that are eager to um, support citizens that may be affected by these storms? Um, what is the best way that maybe they can prepare? 
from my perspective, you know, part of what makes the VOAD movement so successful is the coalition building that takes place across the different representatives of the community, the different organizations um, that are present within the community, being able to bring everyone to the table, whether that's a planning council before a disaster occurs, whether it's an unmet needs roundtable post-disaster or long-term recovery group, looking at ways that they can prepare ahead of time, meet each other, get to know one another, understand capacities and capabilities. Once again, I keep hammering that point home because I think it really is important at the end of the day to understand what is the makeup of your community? Who does your community represent? And do you have the right resources in place to be able to address the needs, anticipated needs of your community at the end of the day? April, I love that. And and I'll just add for our emergency managers, particularly uh, some of our local and county emergency managers, as we think about the coalitions that we seek to build, we should look at coalitions that are already serving a purpose, right? Taking a, a borrowing a line from Mr. Rogers, uh, right? We need to find the helpers. And so you may have community groups that are focused on things that we know systemically show up during disasters, which can be homelessness. So there may be a homelessness interagency council. Uh, maybe there's a council that's focused on youth engagement and just trying to help youth better understand um, and find healthy pathways to engaging. Uh, but looking at those existing coalitions that are solving some of the everyday problems and then working to introduce yourself in a place to help them pivot towards what would those services and support look like in the event of a disaster, be it a hurricane, a wildfire, or even some of the low visibility, long range disasters like drought, right? I think that that's something that we often are focused on. And I know many of our BOAD partners look at as well, is we recognize that the range of hazards uh, that we all have to respond to are, are, are vast and complex. Uh, but thankfully, with partners like the National Voluntary Organizations Active in Disasters and community partners, including uh, groups like the Chisholm Legacy Project. Uh, I know April mentioned the Undivide Project. Or there's a few others that are in that environmental and climate justice space. We do have the coalition. Uh, we just have to look a bit differently from the emergency management side to see who's already solving these problems. How can we come alongside them? And how do we build those tables together uh, that honors and respects the expertise that they bring uh, to help people before, during, and after disasters? Marcus and April, thank you for the very robust conversation. And, and now I thought we'd, we'd take a little minute, a moment to talk about um, something that I think is used quite a bit uh, amongst emergency managers when they're thinking about um, maybe uh, something that they're they're regularly planning for, um, or maybe something that they've explored uh, amongst their organization that really you know, causes them some concern uh, professionally. And since you are both extremely experienced emergency managers here, let's ask the question, um, what keeps you up at night? And I'm going to turn it to April 1st. Yeah, no, great question. I always love this question in the emergency management community. Um, so, you know, I think about it from the perspective of what I like to call the other four C's, if you will. And the first one for me that jumps out is really cost. Um, you know, we're continuing to see uh, an increase in billion dollar disasters annually. And so looking at the, the increased cost of disasters as a whole, um, thinking about concurrence, um, responding to wildfires on the West Coast while we're responding to a hurricane in the Gulf simultaneously, and the challenges that that presents around resource adjudication and decision making across the board. You know, that third area I think about is complexity. And I, I'm reminded of, you know, some of the terrible fires we've had out West um, where instead of rebuilding neighborhoods, we're we are rebuilding entire communities across the board. And so um, also finally, just thinking about compassion and that amount of compassion and care 
that it takes to respond to all of these events year after year, month after month from our volunteer community and how that can take its own toll. Um, you know, mindful of self-care, um, taking care of ourselves and one another before we can take care of others um, is kind of what keeps me up at night. Sure. Marcus, how about you? Absolutely. So I know uh, FEMA Administrator Chrysler often talks about black swans, and I think that those are true, right? Very unique events. Uh, but I'm equally concerned about the gray rhino. Uh, this is a concept that was developed by Michelle Wooker, and a lot of what she talks about with gray rhinos, right, are these big, obvious things that are right in front of us uh, that for whatever reason, we don't take action. So she she talks about this in a crisis leadership context, uh, but we think about, right, the things that are in front of us, as April mentioned, compassion fatigue, uh, increased costs, and how some of those things that are very obvious are going to show up in an exacerbated way if we don't do something about them from a disaster planning perspective um, in response to recovery. And so uh, I'm always mindful of the black swans that can happen, I think, to April's point. Uh, there are a lot of disasters that we respond to at once. If this was an exercise 10 or 15 years ago, we wouldn't have thought any of these injects would have been possible, but it's real, right? And so I think we want to be mindful, not just of those black swan things that occur, uh, but just being mindful of, again, some of those gray rhino topics. So I think often about infrastructure and how the aging infrastructure is going to continue to be impacted disproportionately in communities of color and places that may have had historical underinvestment in, in maintaining infrastructure and how that's going to continue to show up. I think we've seen that uh, not just in wildfires, uh, but in severe cold weather as well. Uh, but those are the kind of things, right? I think we want to definitely have the right kind of subscriptions and imaginations in place for things that we can't imagine. Uh, but I'm always mindful that we should focus on the things that are right in front of us uh, because often like gray rhinos uh, we see them um, and when they come at us it, it, it can hurt if we're not ready for it so that's what i think about thanks for listening to this episode of before during and after a podcast from fema if you'd like to learn more about this episode or other topics or have ideas for future episodes visit us at fema.gov podcast Thank you.